Last week I gave some and some some practical instructions. You know, one of those things was we, we need to pray no matter who our elected officials are. The Bible teaches us in Timothy that we are to pray for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. And so, you know, I began to think, you know, what do you pray, what do you want people to pray to God for you? You know, I, I began to think, you know, I, I'd love it if our church prayed for me and Kelly and our marriage, that it'd be strong, that we wouldn't allow things to come between us. I would love for our church to pray for me that, and for my wife and for my family that we'd have good health, that God would provide us with good health and solutions when problems arise because the reality is we all get older, we get the wrinkles, we get the body aches, you know. But, but you know, we, if you don't know, Kelly's had some ongoing issues and it'd be, like to, it'd be nice to have some answers, you know. Why does my knee swell every couple of months when I'm just walking on a treadmill, you know? Uh, why do I have chronic tendonitis in my elbow? You know, I'm not trying to just complain about our aches and pains, but I'm simply saying you have them, and it'd be nice, you know, man, man, if the doctors could give me a solution and resolve this. I mean, it, it's hard to go to the doctor and say, have say, well, you know, it's 50-50. You know, one could be this, could be that. Doesn't it kind of leave you a little bit like, whoa, whoa, well, you know, is it the bad thing or is it the not-so-bad thing, you know? And, and yet, you know, because of all these liability reasons, sometimes it's hard to get definitive answers from doctors sometimes, you know? So I'd want you to pray for health and solutions when problems arise. I'd want you to pray that as I'm studying that God bird, you know, gives me the messages that we need and that I would have boldness and freedom from the Spirit of God to share them. I would want you to pray, you know, that our house and our cars and those kinds of things that we need to function in this life, that they work and they don't break. You know, kind of like, you remember the story in the Bible where the oil didn't run out? You remember that story? I think it was with Elijah and the widow and her son. And she, she just kept going to the pots and they, they just kept finding oil and God sustained them. But there's so many great things that we could pray for for one another, couldn't we? And I shared with you last week how God convicted me of not praying for those same things for my president, for my congressman, for my senators. You know, it's really hard to complain, isn't it, if, if we go to the Word of God and we see this command, pray for them, and we know we're not. How do you then say, God, what's going on, right? Kind of hard to do that, isn't it? And so I challenged you last week to pray. You know, I found a, a very interesting um, prayer that, that a president of the Southern, I think it's the South... Western Baptist Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist School, President Albert Moeller gave the following advice, and I'm just going to give you some of his summary points, of what he was praying before the election. He prayed that Americans would be prepared to accept the results of the election with respect and kindness, and may Christians res respond with prayer, respect for office, and a gentle spirit. He prayed that this election would lead to even greater opportunities to preach the gospel and that freedom of the church would be respected, honored, and protected. That's a really good thing to pray for, don't you think? He prayed for the church to be strengthened in the truth and grounded in the faith and empowered for witness and ministry. I thought that was a great prayer. He concluded his prayer with these words, May God bless America, not because this nation deserves to be blessed, 
but because he is a God of grace and mercy. I have realized that, well, I'm not real big for entitlements. Wherever you stand, that's fine. And I'm not real big on rewarding people who don't work. I am for giving people food and water and basic necessities if they're in crisis and, and cannot, cannot get those things for themselves. So I'm not uncompassionate. But I, I have found myself sometimes frustrated with the idea that, that I would have to give more tax dollars to help more programs when it seems to me that the government on some level is incompetent. You know, doesn't seem to manage the money well. You may disagree with me on that. I don't know. And I find myself struggling in my spirit at times. Then I realize when I look in the mirror that sometimes I've, I live my life as if having the house and car, flat screen TVs, Mac computers, iPhones, and steady employment is deserved. Because when something happens to one of those things, I tend to have a bad attitude. When something at my house breaks, I tend to want to say, God, don't you know I'm serving, I'm, I'm trying to live right for you. Why would you let this happen to me? What am I saying? I'm saying that I deserve to be blessed. Aren't I? Because the Bible tells me that God has only promised to supply my need. He's promised food, clothing, and shelter. And you can look that up in Matthew chapter number six in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's chapter six, five or six. You'll see that that's what, that's what Jesus said. This is, listen, if your father clothes the lilies, if he feeds the sparrows, he'll care for you. But that's specifically in the context of food, clothing, you know, food, raiment, shelter. So more than that means I'm already blessed. So when something happens to one of those extra things and I respond with an attitude that says, wait a minute. I don't deserve, I'm saying I'm entitled to it. I'm saying I ought to be blessed. And so I find myself, when I look in the mirror, sometimes being just a little bit, or maybe a lot a bit, of a hypocrite. Just being a little transparent with you. Because we here in America are blessed because we have more than what we need. Most of us do have more than what we need. From this election season, I'm going to draw some observations. And at first you're going to be like, well, maybe some of them you don't know. Some of them come from Albert Moeller and others. As I was reading this past week, uh, some different blogs and responses from other pastors and, you know, some facts and some statistics come out. And Here's what we know. In this past election, we elected a president who would continue the path of moral decline for our nation on, some, on several levels. A pro-abortion, pro-entitlement, pro-homosexual agenda. Now, by the way, I don't hate homosexuals and neither should you. We ought love them. We ought not withhold from them good. Because all that is is singling out one sin and picking at it. 
But if, the mirror, if we looked in that mirror again and, and, and gave the same freedom to everyone else to speak about our sin, the way we often speak or we often in the evangelical world pick at this issue, we wouldn't like it either. So the Bible tells us that we owe people, what do we owe them? To love them. To love them. That's what we owe them. We don't have to agree with them. But it's one thing to love them, love them and another thing to promote sin. We witnessed the election of the first openly gay senator. We saw two states legalize gay marriage. We witnessed a nation that is extremely divided with radically different worldviews and visions for the future. What I mean when I say that is I mean, let me give you an example. Somebody who's a Bible-believing Christian is going to interpret and view the world and what they believe God is doing in the world very differently than somebody who's a non-church-going person, a non-Bible-believing person who may be an agnostic or an atheist. But in our world, we are, in our country, we are far more diverse than that. There are multitudes of voices and worldviews and, and, and religions and, and, and denominations and, and various other ideas from, from Wicca and worship of Satan all the way to biblical Christianity and everything in between. There's, there's so much diversity today. Since 1967... 100 million people have been added to the population of the United States of America. That changes things. Because we have fewer churches in 2012 than we did in 1967, depending on how you count, if you count everybody. Okay? 100, more, 100 million more people. Same or a little less in the number of churches, okay? So I'm just sharing with you some, some, some statistics, some observations here. As we go forward, what we're going to find as Bible-believing Christians is that we're left with morally difficult decisions. For instance, what do you do about your tax dollars being spent to fund abortions? Do you not pay taxes? I mean, what are we going to do? As Bible-believing Christians, we know, I mean, we can, we can be Democrat, Republican, whatever. I, I think the majority of people believe we ought to reduce the number of abortions happening. But I mean, I'm talking about actually making funding available with our tax dollars. I don't know about you, but stuff like that can keep me up at night thinking a little bit. Now, I'm not saying to you, go home and make a decision not to pay your taxes. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I'm just pointing out the moral dilemma that we will face as Bible-believing Christians who believe that God promotes life. What do we do with our tax dollars that are being spent to fund things like that? What about Christian colleges, hospitals, soup kitchens, and businesses run by Christians or owned by Christians that are going to have to provide health insurance plans with required services that violate their, their religious beliefs. What are we going to do? Because that's coming. It's already upon us. What will we do as pastors if, if mentioning a certain sin is defined as a hate crime and we risk imprisonment? By the way, Canada's already moved 
in that direction. What will parents do when when teaching your children to love and fear God is now defined as child abuse? We have a a well-known media figure on one of our major networks who has said, if you're an evangelical right-wing Christian, you're a child abuser. What are we going to do if that thinking becomes mainstream? If that's the world, the predominant world view? You say, Pastor, I didn't come to church this morning to be discouraged. I know. I know you didn't. But sometimes we have, we have to face the reality of what is coming and make plans to prepare, don't we? We can't afford to stick our heads in the sand and continue to live our lives day after day just taking care of our own personal needs in our own little world. You know, that's kind of where I think evangelical Christians have somewhat moved in the last 20 or 30 years. We've got our own schools, our own colleges, our own churches, our own homes. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know our community. We're not really engaged and involved in influencing it. So where is the salt and light? If we're going to promote separation under the, under the concept of isolation or making subcultures within cultures. Where will that kind of a ministry philosophy take us? So we're going to face some difficult decisions. If you've read uh, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're going to realize that he faced a moral dilemma with the rise of Hitler in Germany. And as a pastor, he made a very difficult decision to become a part of the resistance movement. And it eventually cost him his life, I believe, at the age of 37. He was one of the last individuals martyred under the Hitler regime. You say, Pastor, really? Do you think that's possible in the United States of America? Unequivocally and unwaveringly, I say absolutely yes. I want us to look at this scripture again, and would you, would you say those words in yellow with me when we get to them? This comes from Second Chronicles 7.14, the yellow words, say those with me. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. John 15, if you'll go there with me, we're going to connect these passages together. One of the other observations that I've already alluded to is that America is divided, and we wonder, how can America be so divided? And the reason is all these different world views that conflict with one another. We have a crisis of world views. And I've already given you my example You know, some of the other statistics that are facing us is this. For the first time in the history of America, 20%, we crossed the threshold of 20% of people would define themselves as having no religion. 20%. But in 18, in 18 to 30, I think it's 18 to 34-year-olds, do you know that that percent is 34%? 34%. 
according to Pastor Paul Chapel. 34%. That means in this room, if we were just to take this room with about 50, 60 people, if we were all 18 to 34, some of us wish we were back there, you know, <laughs> maybe not. But 18 to 34, that means one-third of this audience would say, I have no religious affiliation in the United States of America. So what I'm saying to you is that influences how people vote when they go to the polls. Do you know that another study was recently done and how much you attend church can be seen in your vote? Just, just some, some random studies that were done. So what are we going to do as Bible-believing Christians when we go to John 15, I want to make some observations and give you just some points to summarize what Jesus is saying in John 15 that we'll face as a nation and as a people and as people of God that we need to be prepared to face. We have been extremely blessed in the United States of America to have the freedom to come and use this place today. When we look at planning our response, to the elections, planning our response. What, are, what am I going to do as a, as, a, as a Christian, as a believer? I'm taking it for granted today that you're sitting here and in your heart you are saying, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior and I have some kind of desire to live for Him, to please God, to follow His Word. I'm going to make that assumption here for just a few moments and let's, let's, let's look at planning our response, but let's look at what Jesus said we would face. Notice in John 15, 19, if you, were, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, what's the context of this passage? Jesus is teaching his disciples. His disciples have come to him. He's called his disciples to them. He is teaching them. By the way, these are his final messages to his disciples before he goes. In the context of he's telling them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send a comforter. A comforter is going to come from the Father. Okay, so Jesus is telling them, these are my final words. These are my final messages to you as, a, as my followers. I'm leaving. So, so, you know, in our minds, if we put ourselves there, these men have followed Jesus for two plus years everywhere he went. They've sat at his feet. They've heard the words that came from the Father, from God the Creator through Jesus. They have heard. They have been fed. They have been challenged. They have been motivated. They are enthusiastic. They are excited for what God is going to do. And then the one they're following says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Wait a minute. Okay, Jesus, if you're leaving, then what can we expect? <laughs> you know how those Pharisees hate me? You know how they're after me to stone me and kill me? I want you to prepare yourself because if they hate me and you follow me, they will hate you. And so we think about that. Wow, when you look back at this passage in John chapter 15, we began at verse 17. Uh, or verse 18, but verse 17 is a great verse. These things I command you that you love one another. Listen, look at, look at, look at each other. You need to love each other. And then, in that, and then he goes on to say, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And then our passage here 
tells us, therefore, here's why. You're a follower of me. They hate me because you follow me. They hate you. And so we see that this passage will tell us that the hatred will grow. In, in another verse, just the very next verse, in John chapter 15, verse 20, and I want again, if you'll read the yellow words with me. We're going to, just, just a portion of this verse. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Would you read these words with me? If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's not they might. It's not that they'll just try. It's that they will. There will be people who oppose followers of Jesus Christ. If they're allowed to and they're permitted to, they will persecute you. They will. You'll be put into sin, in positions where you have to say, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Jesus disciple. And if you do, you will be opposed. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. When I leave and the comforter comes, this is what you can expect. That you'll be persecuted. If you want to jot these down, what may happen? Well, Jesus gave us some ideas. Hatred will get worse and the difference is more vivid. You know, as things get darker and more wicked, when somebody comes around who has the light of Jesus Christ in their lives, who's been transformed and is a new creation in him, they're going to stand out. That's one of the things that's going to happen. The differences will become more vivid, meaning we'll be more divided. I'll be less like the world and they'll become less like me. And so we ask ourselves, why is there such a divide in our nation? The number of people growing with a worldview that doesn't come through the word of God is increasing. While those who would say, I live with a biblical worldview, I try to live my life according to the word of God, I let God and his word tell me how to live, are shrinking. So the differences are going to become more vivid and the hatred will grow. Persecution will come. Verse 20, Jesus said that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now we could pause here for a couple of moments and say just what did they do to Jesus? They opposed him. They threatened him. And eventually their threats became actions. Didn't they? Now I realize Jesus came and gave up his life. But they, they weren't happy just arresting Jesus. They were not happy with just leaving him in prison. When hatred for something dominates your life and it becomes and it leads to action, oftentimes it leads to mutilation and destruction when hatred captivates your heart and mind. And these people, the hatred for Jesus drove them to beat him, mock him, scorn him, shove a crown of thorns on his head, strip the garments off of him after the blood had begun to coagulate and make it bleed again. We would say, man, how, how, how warped can you be to do something like that? Well, my friends, we get a picture 
of the desperate wickedness that lies not only within those who hate Christianity, but even Christians ourselves. The sin that in, is in us, if it were to possess us, if we were to yield to it, would cause us to do unthinkable things as well. And so we see in this passage a third thing. We see that light exposes sin. Sin hates the light's expo- exposure. Uh, look with me at verses 22 through 25. The Bible says, If I had not come and spoken, Jesus speaking of himself, and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. Now, I came, I did these works, I exposed their sin. Some of them would not have known had I not come and exposed it. You know, that's what the light does. The light reproves evil deeds. It exposes them. When people get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, Sometimes you'll see the face turn red, right? And embarrassment. And sometimes people will lash out and say, well, yeah, but you, when that light shines on their lives. And they want to do what we've been doing since the Garden of Eden. They want to shift the blame and the focus on somebody else. And they'll do it with hatred. They'll say, yeah, but... You don't know what you're like, you know. And I can remember doing it. But mom, you don't know what Maria did. You don't know what Melissa did. They provoked me, so I'm not responsible. Now we might say, well, yeah, you know, you see that in the siblings and in your children. And, you know, but we see that in all arenas. Politics between different media outlets toward each other. So, this is what may happen. This is what Jesus told his disciples would happen to them. John 15, 26. Look with me at that that passage. We didn't finish reading the light passage, but Jesus exposed them. By the way, if you wanted some other passages that you could jot down about light and its relationship to darkness and sin, you could jot down John 3, 19 through 21, where Jesus talks about um, coming into the world as the light of the world, but they reject the light because their deeds are evil. You could go to 1 John 1, 7 through 10, where Jesus once again talks about the light coming in and the light shines in darkness. It says, confess your sin, written to believers, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. But if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. That was written to believers in the relationship between the light of Jesus Christ and his word, how it can cleanse us as believers when we sin. So the light exposes sin. Those who are followers of Jesus ought want to get in front of the light as often as they can because they want to walk in harmony with him. So is it any wonder in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 that God, that, that God told Solomon, if I bring pestilence, if I bring, if I bring famine, if, if I bring these things on the people and they turn to me and they confess their sin, that I'll forgive and heal their land. He wants his people to be intimate with the light. Jesus didn't leave us, though, without help. And this is where the hope comes in for me. 
Jesus did not leave us in a predicament where we're going to face hatred at times. We're going to face persecution. We're going to try to be salt and light what Jesus wants us to be and get a response of hatred and anger and rejection. He didn't leave us without help. Because in verse 26, if you'll say these yellow words with me again, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. That Holy Spirit, that comforter, he's going to come to us. He's going to witness. He's going to testify to our hearts. He's going he's to lead us and draw us to Christ. Look with me at John chapter 17. Flip your Bibles over if you have them. There, John chapter 17. I want to show you another passage. Jesus continuing his final thoughts. This is a passage where, that John writes that often captivates my mind because Jesus begins to pray. And this is where he prays for not just those disciples. This is why you say, Pastor, why does this passage in John 17, 15 and 17, why can we say that that's for us today? Why can we say that this passage is meaning that people are going to hate us in our day and it doesn't just apply to those disciples? Because this passage is connected with Jesus' prayer, which is not just for those disciples, but those who will believe on him through them. So it does extend itself to our day. And so in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 18, I want us, in verses 11 and 14, you don't need to read these ones with me, but as we go through this passage, I want you to note those two bold yellow phrases when we get to those. I have manifested thy name, Jesus speaking of himself, praying to the Father, unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them, notice this, verse 8, the words which thou gavest me. Not only do we have the comforter, but we also have the words of God. That's important. It's important to me to know that when I read scripture today, I have the word, the words of God. I have his truth. I have what he wants me to know. Jesus keeps going. They have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. So where are the disciples that he's praying for? In the world. Would you say that with me? In the world. I want to wake everybody up here a little bit. They are, they are in the world. Say that with me one more time. In the world. That's where the disciples are. Are you in the world today? Yes. Yes. You're alive. You're living. You're in the world. But we're going to get a contrast. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy, Fa Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. That's a reference to Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee. Remember I said Jesus is leaving. And these things I speak in the world that they might have, 
my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus, you've just talked about hate, you've talked about persecution, and yet you say it's possible that his joy might be fulfilled in them. So it's possible for us to have joy. It's possible for us to respond in a way that's positive, though we face hatred and persecution. Notice verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because, notice this, they are not of the world. We are in the world, but say this with me, they are not of the world. They are not of the world. Say that with me. They are not of the world. One more time. They are not of the world. So here we are. We have disciples who are in the world, but not of the world. I'm in it. I don't have a choice. I'm in it. But I don't have to be of it. I don't have to be like it because I'm supposed to be like the light. I'm supposed to be following the words that have been given to me by my Savior. In this passage, let me summarize this. We find from chapter 15, verse 26, two wonderful truths. The Comforter has come. Now, by the way, the Comforter has come to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in those individuals who are his. So he's, he's come. The Bible tells us that the word of truth is come. In John 17, 17, Jesus brought words of truth. Those words were record, recorded by many of those apostles in the Gospels and the various epistles that Paul and others and James and John and others wrote. They gave them to us. We have them. We possess them today. So how can I prepare myself? I want to give you just a biblical example. You remember the story of Daniel? You remember Daniel? I know that our time is just about up today, but I want to give you this example and encourage you and leave you with some practical things. In Daniel chapter number 1 and verse 8, we find a verse that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In the context of this passage, Daniel's been carried, off, carried away captive. He's in a foreign land. A, a, a land of an empire that took Israel captive. You could say that was a pretty oppressive environment, don't you think? Having to learn a new culture, new language, given new names, expected to participate in things that they were taught would defile them. So what are they to do? What are we to do? I find that when we look at the story of the lives of Daniel and the other three Hebrew children that are mentioned, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that we can find from their examples some decisions and some choices that we can make in light of the fact that we may face opposition. First of all, I think you can see that Daniel... Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 8, is committed that he will stand for purity before God. In other words, I'll put my life on the line. You can do to me whatever you need to do to me, but I'm going to purpose in my heart to follow God. Boy, don't you think that was a risky thing to do? 
to, 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 to tell uh, that, that, that one who was put in charge over them, listen, listen, let, let, can we just eat pulse and water and then in a few weeks or a, few, or, or a time period designated in that passage, you can come back and call us and if we're, if we're as healthy or if we're in better health than those others that you're going to feed all that food, a picture of the world, you know, and all that stuff, if you're going to force that on them, let's just see who's better. And Daniel and he purposed in his heart. I'm not going to define myself. I'm going to walk purely before my God. Man, Christians, it doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. We can still put the advice God gave to Solomon in practice and walk in purity before our God. Can't we? Can't we live and keep short accounts with God, confessing our sin and, and going to him? I find as we continue in chapter number two, uh, there's this dream that the emperor, the king, has. And his Chaldean wise men can't, can't solve it. And, and he's, he's furious. He's angry. And the Bible says that Daniel, if you look at Daniel chapter number two and verse 12, he exercised wisdom. Daniel chapter two and verse 12 says, for this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree goes forth. And in verse 14, then Daniel answered with counsel. That's with understanding. He didn't go in there blowing the doors down. He didn't pull out guns and knives of resistance. He took a look at the circumstances and understood where he was. How little power he had personally. And he went in with understanding and wisdom to the captain of the king's guard. And we, if you read the rest of the story, Daniel then seeks the Lord and his word for answers in verse 17. Daniel went and cried out to the Lord for an answer to that dream. And God revealed it to him. You know, as we deal with opposition, we ought to be able to stand for purity no matter who's in the office. We ought to be able to speak with wisdom and understanding and love and compassion. We ought be able to seek the Lord and we ought to do it regularly and seek the Lord in his word. If it's really true, that church attendance is directly related to how people vote. Cutting God and his word and the opportunity for it to influence our lives out of our lives is never a good thing because it means other things are influencing us because God created us to be influenced. So we have to ask ourselves and evaluate, is the world getting more of me, more of my heart, and more of my mind, or is God and his word getting more of mine? What am I seeking? We can steal hearts and minds. I like that word. That was a new word for me. We can steal our hearts. When you, when you heat up steel, it becomes hard and strong. It's the idea of girding up the loins of your mind. It's the idea of being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's Ephesians chapter number six, and having done all to stand, stand. It's fortitude. See, this is something we have to decide ahead of time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those Babylonian names for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
they determined we're not going to bow down to this false idol. But they were threatened with fire. They were threatened with death. But they steeled their hearts and their minds. We will serve God. I think we need some Christians who will do that. I also think we need some Christians who will stay involved and get involved. If you go back to chapter number 3 and verse number 30, these individuals were promoted by the emperor, by the king. He saw their faith. Man, he declared, this is the true God. When he saw God in the fire with those three that he had cast in, he made this declaration. And then the Bible says that he promoted them in the kingdom. They didn't say, hey, no, you know what? We're just going to go off in our own little bubble and just hang with the Jews. He promoted them and gave them positions of which they fulfilled and served. Daniel served through multiple empires. He didn't disengage because the worldview of the, em- of the emperor wasn't the same as his. Do you see where I'm going with this? He stayed engaged and he stayed involved. He allowed God to use him as a testimony. So you say, Pastor, what can I do? I can commit myself to purity before God. I can commit myself to speak with understanding and wisdom when I'm given opportunity. I can seek the Lord and his word for answers. I can steal my heart in my mind, make a decision that I'm going to live for God. I'm going to stay involved. I wonder today as we close our message, as we close our message today, if I were to hand out this paper, Brother Eric, if you'd help me. I have here today, Gabe, would you help me? I want everybody to take one of these. You say, Pastor, how can I be these things and be salt and light in my community? Well, I went this week and I looked at the Glastonbury, Connecticut town website. And I found that there are town council meetings. If the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and you attend that town council meeting, you take the Holy Spirit of God with you. And I don't know if we have Christians who attend these meetings or not. You can attend the Board of Ed meetings, and I even put the dates for those Board of Ed meetings. You can volunteer to serve on a board or a commission. There are 29 of them in the town of Glastonbury alone. Now multiply that by the eight or nine towns that are represented in this room. You can write cards of encouragement to our local elected officials. Their their emails, you can send e-cards. Their email addresses are public on our town website. You could send out or forward invitations such as our Christmas flyer that'll come out. And you could invite them and say, hey, listen, I was thinking about you and I want to invite you to come and celebrate the the real meaning of Christmas with us. Now, these are specific ways you and I could get involved. If you're interested, I'd love to have somebody from our church at every one of those things. Now, there's... 29 commissions. Not, some of them are elected, so some of them you'd have to run for office to become a part of. But many of them are volunteer, like the Beautification Committee, right? Where you can engage people and be salt and light. They may not like it, <laughs> but God said, Jesus said, we'd face hatred 
and we'd face persecution, but he called us to be salt and light. Now, I'd love it if you filled your name out and said, you know what, Pastor, I'd be interested in doing this and then put it in the offering plate. Maybe not this week, maybe next week. I just want us to be involved and engage our community. I want us to really believe these things. I want us to begin emulating and copying what we find the Word of God telling us to do. Church isn't just about coming and being encouraged. Sometimes church is about coming and hearing the Word of God and going out and doing something. And we might say, Pastor, I don't got time to do another thing. I know I do. I mean, I have hours I spend watching TV during the week. Sometimes I think we hide behind that. I work 50, 60 hours a week. I don't want to, as a pastor, create six services for you to come to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'd rather you study at one service, worship on Sunday morning, and then take another night and go do something for God outside the church. Because we're called to be salt and light. And so I want to ask you to get involved. It doesn't matter if you face hatred or persecution. Why? Because you have a comforter and you have the word of truth and you have a Savior who gave his life for you. We have to be people of action. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, perhaps there's somebody here who can't say in their heart that they're a believer in Jesus Christ, that they have humbled themselves before you and acknowledged their sinfulness and looked to you and trusted you alone to forgive them of their sin. Lord, maybe that's their need today so the Holy Spirit of God can come and live inside of them. And as Ephesians 2 says, make them alive. Lord, perhaps there are Christians here who, like myself, are saying, you know, what can I do? I'm just one person. What did Daniel do? He stood for purity. He spoke with understanding and wisdom. And you used that. These Hebrew children who were determined to honor and magnify you, even with the threat of fire. God, would we be those kinds of people? Or would we cave? Would we sheepishly bow with the rest of the multitude? Would we dare to get involved and stay involved? I pray you'd work in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.